Now, guys, grab your Bibles and let's go back to the book of Ruth. Um, <clears throat> let me read you my text this morning. It's, it's found in the third chapter of the book of Ruth. It consists of one verse. Um, Ruth chapter 3, verse 18. You follow as I read. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, we're in the midst of a study of the book of Ruth, as you might understand or know. Um, But we've come to a place in the story where there's a little pause in the action. Um, You do see, don't you, what Ruth is being asked to do. Uh, She's being asked to do something that we don't do very well. She's being asked to sit still. She's being asked. To wait. And um, we're a pretty impatient people. I mean, we're a horn-honking, microwaving, FedEx-mailing, fast-food-eating, express-line-shopping kind of bunch. And we don't do this well. I hate to wait. You know, in my mind, um, One of the best meals that is available in all of the city of Memphis is the chicken tenders platter at Houston's restaurant. But I rarely, if ever, get that meal. Uh, And you know why? I don't want to wait in that lobby until they can call my name that my table is ready. You know, terrible things go on when I'm waiting. Um, my, My teeth grind and my blood pressure goes up and my whole perspective on life changes. I've, I've embarrassed my, my, my wife. I've embarrassed my kids. I've embarrassed myself in things that I have said or done while I've had to wait. And, and, you know, like you, I've got to do it several times a week. You know, why is it that I get in the line at Kroger where the checker is always a trainee? Um, the, 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 the traffic, the traffic that I'm in, my line is always the one that's not moving and I am desperate to get in the one that's moving. You, you get in the, the, the drive through at Wendy's and, um, the guy in front of you doesn't know whether he wants cheese or not on his hamburger. And he's calling his mother in Tulsa to find out whether he should eat cheese or something. And I think, just get the cheese and tear it off. <laughs> you know. You know, um, um, I, I read a story recently, and I think it's a true story, where a woman, uh, her car stalled in uh, rush hour traffic, and um, she got out of the car, and she opened the hood, and she tried to look in to see if she could fix what was the matter, and, and uh, she couldn't find anything, and, and the guy behind her was in a car, and he was just relentlessly leaning on his horn. And so finally she had had enough. And so she walked back to the guy who's honking and, and, um, and, uh, said very sweetly, she said, sir, I, you know, I don't know. I can't explain what's the matter with my car, but if you would like to go look under the hood yourself, I'll be glad to stay here and honk for you. <laughs> you know, somebody suggested that there needs to be a whole new unit of time measurement called the honk a second. 
It's, it's the time period between when the light changes green and we start honking, which is, it's pretty fast, you know? You know, but, but, um, all of that stuff is, can be, or perhaps is funny. But, but there's another kind of waiting that isn't funny at all. There's another kind of more acute waiting. Uh, you know, there's waiting. And then there's waiting. There's the waiting of a wife who wants to be a mother. There's the waiting of a mother who wishes that her children would just get out of that lifestyle. There's the waiting of, uh, of the single person who uh, wants to get married. There's the waiting of the unemployed that just wants a job. There's a waiting of a, of a person in a bad marriage that just wants some kind of relief, some kind of escape. There's, there's the waiting of the lonely, just longing to be long, to belong. There's a waiting of, of the brokenhearted who's waiting for a day where they won't spend part of it crying. There's the waiting of a senior citizen in a nursing home who, um, who's just waiting to die. There's, there's a waiting for the, the not yet that seems like not ever. You know, and I think that's where Ruth is right about now. That's, um, that's the place in which we find her. Um, longing to have something that she doesn't have, that, that somebody is saying not yet and she fears it means not ever. Um, the name Philip Brooks won't ring a bell with many of you. Philip Brooks was a, was a preacher in London back in the 19th century. He preached about the same time Spurgeon did, and, and um, he was known to be a very tender, uh, sweet-spirited, patient man. And on one occasion, a friend walked into his office, and Philip Brooks was pacing the floor, and he was obviously agitated, and, and um, um, the, the visitor said, Dr. Brooks, what on earth is the matter? And, and Brooks said, I'm in a hurry, but God is not. Isn't that the way it so often seems with God? Uh, you, you desperately want something that you don't have, something that's legitimate, something that's worthwhile, and you've, you've, uh, you've been forced to wait for it, and there's, there's just no end in sight, and you, there's a pain that's dull. It's a daily dull ache, and you can't do anything during the course of your day without thinking about it. You know, guys, waiting is a, is a form of suffering. I mean, do you, do you, did you ever think that God is taking his own sweet time with you? I can remember when, when our girls were small. I have three daughters. They're all adults now and have children and I have 11 grandchildren. But, um, um, when we were, when they were small, Susie cooked a lot and we would have mealtime, dinner time. Uh, around the table, all of us, you know, I know that doesn't happen anymore. That's, that's what I'm told, but we used to do it. I mean, we were, some of my happiest memories are at supper time. 
And uh, so we'd be, it'd be supper time and we'd be sitting there at the table. That'd be four of us. That'd be Susie, me, and two of the girls. And one of them was somewhere. We didn't know where. And we were waiting to pray so that we could go ahead and start eating. And, and so we'd wait and we'd wait and we'd wait. And, and uh, you know, the little, one of them wouldn't show up. And finally I had enough and I'd say, get in here. And so, you know, they'd come scampering in and, and I'd, I'd look at them and say, where have you been? And they'd look at me sheepishly and say something stupid like, well, I was, I was watching television. You were watching television. Are you oblivious to my needs or to our needs? My point is, guys, sometimes, um, sometimes as I have waited, I have felt that, that God is like that. He's distracted. He's, he's preoccupied and so wrapped up in his own affairs that he's forgotten about mine. You know, there's a, there's a place in the scriptures where saints who are in the presence of, um, in the presence of the Lord, they ask, how long, O Lord? It's a good question. It's a biblical question. How long, O Lord? Um, and, and really, they're not asking how many more days, how many more weeks, how many more years. What, what, they're, what they're asking is, God, can we trust you? Is there, is there meaning in all of this? How much more of this do you think I can stand? What, what are you doing here, Lord? I mean, what, um, where did you go? I get angry at God because he, he doesn't seem to answer my prayers. I've been unemployed for months and I've prayed about it and God doesn't seem to hear or, or, or even care. You know, if, if God loves me like I've been told all my life, uh, he, he ought to do something about my problems. Uh, shouldn't he? Well, guys, what's the answer to that question? You know, what I want to offer you this morning is not, um, is, is hopefully a little bit of a, or at least part of the answer to that question, but it's, it's certainly not anything close to 10 easy steps to better waiting. Ladies and gentlemen, there are no steps. And, and this waiting business is not easy. To promise you an easy solution would be to fly in the face of this book. Because waiting, ladies and gentlemen, is difficult. It's the most difficult of all the spiritual disciplines. Lewis Smead says that waiting is the hardest work of hope. You know, um, Soren Kierkegaard is the name. He certainly was no friend of evangelicals, but um, Soren Kierkegaard tells a story about a, a young man who stole uh, the answers uh, uh, to the math exam uh, from his teacher's desk. And so what his goal was, was to memorize all the right answers. And so he could come on the next day and, and, you know, spit out the answers, make a hundred on the test and get an A in the course. And, and, and Kierkegaard makes the point that, you know, getting answers that way is, are, are, are no answers at all. And then he says, to truly have the answers, you got to first work through the problems. That's what I'm saying this morning, ladies and gentlemen, that if we're really going to learn how to wait with grace, then we've got to work through the problems. What I want to offer you this morning, I, I hope will help. I, I, um, 
I hope that it'll make us better at this thing that Ruth is being asked to do and what we're asked to do so often. I, I hope it will help us become better at waiting. What I want to offer you is, is two things. First of all, one's a conviction and the other is an attitude. I'm saying that there's a conviction and an attitude uh, that will make us better at this. So let me start with this conviction first. Guys, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a reformed Presbyterian in my theological distinctives. Um, if there's one calling card to people who spend their time in theological circles like mine, it is the overpowering truth that God is sovereign. I believe that. I believe that down to my toenails. I believe that he's sovereign over the universe. He's sovereign over the affairs of men. He's sovereign over the salvation of men. And I glory in his sovereignty. But I am almost ready to say that there is a truth about God that is more important than his sovereignty, especially when it comes to this whole idea of waiting. For me, in, in, in my frailty, facing what I face, living on a planet that still is reeling from that cosmic car wreck we call the fall, for me, I find more encouragement, I find more joy, I find more peace in the fact that he is good than I do in the fact that he is sovereign. Now, gang, please don't misunderstand me. I am in no way saying that God is not sovereign. Oh, indeed he is, and he is gloriously so. But facing what I face, the great hope for me comes not as I consider his control, but as I consider his goodness. Gang, I can spend the rest of the afternoon teaching you from this book Places where his goodness is being taught propositionally. That is, that it, that, that God is good. Uh, Psalm 25, Psalm 34, Psalm 100, Nahum 1, Jeremiah 33. Uh, but I thought the, the one text that you would uh, find familiar is one that's found in the New Testament. Jesus says it in Matthew 19. You remember the story of the rich young ruler? When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. I could spend the rest of the afternoon just teaching the principles that are found, but teaching you that God is good is different than you believing that God is good. But I say to you, my friend, you take that from me, you take from me that God is good and there is little, if anything, that makes sense. Look at this story, the story of Ruth. Smell it. Does it emit a pleasing aroma to you? Do, you? do you believe that all these wonderful things will come to those who will but only wait? Or do you smell a rat? Because if you do, you are probably going to be overwhelmed at the problems and the conundrums brought into life, asking you to wait. Oh, okay, okay, Dr. Young, I get it. What, what, you're, what you're asking us to do is, is just um, uh, to believe, that we're called upon to believe that, uh, that, that, that God is good. Yes, that is what I'm saying. But let me add this. 
Guys, in this book, waiting is so closely associated with faith that oftentimes you see the words being used interchangeably. Faith in what? Well, faith in the goodness of God. Waiting means faith in the goodness of God. Guys, underneath all of my life's riddles, there must be this settled conviction that at least as important as the things on which I wait is the work that a good God is doing in me while I wait. What we're doing, what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is because we believe that God is good, we are giving him the benefit of the doubt that he knows what he's doing and it is fueled by his goodness. I'm suggesting that the thing that would, one of the things that would help us be better at this waiting thing is an unswerving conviction that our God and Father in heaven is good. You know, Bob Schuler is a name that many of you will recognize, and I really was never much of a fan of Bob Schuler's, and his, and his ministry didn't end all that well. It, um, you may know that the Crystal Cathedral uh, went into bankruptcy and was sold on the open market to uh, the highest bidder. But uh, Bob uh, Schuler used to used to say this a lot when he uh, in his books and and um, when he spoke, he would say, um, "What great things would you attempt for God if you knew that you would not fail?" I don't even like that question. I mean, the question bugs me. But if I could paraphrase it, tell me. What great things would you wait for if you knew that God was good and that he wouldn't fail you? Guys, I'm saying that there's a conviction that is needed in the midst of our wait. And that conviction is that God is good. And then add to that an attitude an attitudinal virtue that is that will make waiting easier. And you know where I learned about this attitude? I learned about it standing in the lobby of Houston's restaurant while they were waiting to call my name for my table. And that that the uh, the attitude that I found that I was missing is a virtue known as humility. I mean one of the reasons that waiting at Houston's is so hard on me is because I'm so blasted high-minded. Don't those people know who I am? Well, tell us, Jimmy, who are you? Well, here's who I am. I'm a creature. God is God, and I'm a creature. I am one of the sheep of his pasture. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Um, it is, we're his beloved creatures. We're the very crown of his creation, but we're nothing but creatures, folks. 
Humility recognizes that we exist for God's sake. He doesn't exist for ours. It is not that he is in my appointment book. I am in his. Guys, it's, it's only the humble who can, who can wait with grace. Because it's only the humble who know that we have no right to lay demands on him and his universe. It's only the humble that know that life is a gift. It's not a right. It's only the humble that knows that everything that we have, we got by way of a gift. And one of those things that he's given us is life. It's a gift, not a right. Humility humility shows us our proper place in the universe, ladies and gentlemen. You know, if we're going to wait well, we're going to have to give up on this idea of telling God how, what he should do and what he should be like. You know, God, if you were as smart as I am, you would, uh, you'd be doing this. Guys, we're so afraid that God somehow is not going to get it right. But if you'd just check with me, I could tell him what right looks like. And that's why That's why these periods of waiting are so hard on us. I um, I read a story um, recently. It's a Henry Nowen story, and I think it combines both of those things. That is, the the conviction and the and the and the attitude of humility. Henry Nowen is that guy that I, I really like. Henry Nowen. He wrote this book about the prodigal son. I've told you about. Anyway. Henry Nowen tells a story about, uh, in the course of his ministry, he met a, a family uh, of trapeze artists. You know what those guys are, you know, at the circuses, you know, they fly around up, so, and they do this crazy stuff, and they're in those tight little pants and all. You know, it's just, it's, it's really entertaining. Uh, but um, uh, he said these, these friends of his told him that the first thing that was necessary is that there must be a, a very special relationship between the flyer and the catcher. Now, you know what, folks? I got that part. I, I mean, I, I understand that fully. If I, if I were the flyer, I would, I, <laughs> I would want to have a very good relationship with the catcher. I would want to make sure that there's no lingering resentments that he might have about me. I would, I would want the catcher to, to like me very much. I, that part I got, but the, the, these guys went on. They said that um, as a flyer, uh, and, and as he's swinging, you know, high above the crowd, there comes a moment when he's got to let go of that trapeze, and and he arcs out over the crowd, and 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 for that moment or a couple of moments, which must feel like an eternity, um, the flyer is suspended over nothingness. It's too late to reach back for the trapeze. There's no going back now. But it's it's also too soon to be caught. And so there he is, suspended over, over nothingness. He cannot accelerate the catch. And in that moment, or those moments, his job is to be a still and as motionless as he can possibly be and wait. The flyer must never try to catch the catcher. He must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him. 
but he must wait. His job is not to flail around in anxiety and fear. In fact, if he does that, it might kill him. His job is to be still and to wait. And then these guys said to now, and the waiting is the hardest job of all. You know, guys, um, I bet that while that flyer is out there waiting, I bet you he's not guilty of one moment of one moment of high-mindedness. And all he can say to himself is, my catcher is good. My brother and sister in Christ, our catcher is good. Do you believe that? It will make all the difference in the world in the way that you wait. Now, one other quick thing, and I'll quit. I, I just want to finish by, um, I, I want to remind you of the, um, the horror, the mistake, the pain of not waiting. I, I guess the best biblical example of not waiting in the, in the, disaster that it created is the story in the life of Abraham. You remember that Abraham at Genesis 16, um, he wanted a son, uh, he wasn't getting one. And so, uh, Sarah suggested that he take her handmaid Hagar. And so he likes that idea. He takes Hagar, he impregnates her. She has a boy and his name is Ishmael. Remember that? And Ishmael is the father of all the Arab world. And because Abraham didn't wait, we've been, we've been wrestling around with Arabs or the rest of history. Well, but the best contemporary example of, of the, the mistake of not waiting is a little YouTube I saw recently. I, 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 it seems like but within the last 90 days, I've seen this YouTube. Uh, and it, and I think you can find it if you'd like. It's, um, it's, I think it's called the marshmallow test. I think if you went to YouTube and typed in marshmallow test, I think it would probably pop up. But here's what it was. It was a group of Stanford, uh, it was a team of Stanford research folk who, um, who did this piece of research on four-year-old boys and girls. They had a group of four-year-old boys and girls. And the test, it was like this, or it was, um, it took place like this. The, um, the researcher ushered a little four-year-old into a room with a table and a chair and, and sat the little four-year-old down. In front of the four-year-old, there was one marshmallow. And uh, they were told this, the little four-year-olds were told this, um, I've got to run an errand and I won't be gone long, but if you can wait until I get back and not eat your marshmallow, I'll give you another marshmallow. Uh, I will double your pleasure if you can just wait until I get back. Now you can go ahead and eat it right now if you like, but um, if you will wait until I get back, I'll give you another marshmallow. You have two marshmallows. 
And so the, the researcher leaves and, and they've got this whole thing videoed and, and that's what the YouTube is. It's hilarious. Watching these little four-year-olds wrestle around, you know, they are just in turmoil over that little marshmallow that's right in front of them. And, and the, 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 <coughs> the YouTube is about the strategies that they develop to, to try and, you know, to accomplish this weight. And you know, they're, they'll sing and they'll, you know, they'll twiddle their fingers and they'll examine their, they examine their fingers and, and, and one of them leans over and sniffs at the marshmallow and, and, and one little girl licks the table around the, the, the around the marshmallow. And, and then, um, um, then a couple of them eat the marshmallow and, and you know, that, that, that's the YouTube. But what I didn't know and what the YouTube didn't tell you is something I read recently is that the research team from Stanford followed these four-year-olds on well into adulthood. And their findings were these. Those who were able to wait as four-year-olds grew up to be more socially competent, better able to cope with stress, and less likely to give up under pressure than those who could not wait. The marshmallow grabbers grew up to be more stubborn and indecisive, more easily upset by frustration, and more resentful about not getting enough. And then here's the amazing stat, or a part of the stat, which I found just mind-boggling. The group of marshmallow waiters had SAT scores that averaged... 210 points higher than the group of marshmallow grabbers. 210 points on the SAT test, ladies and gentlemen. They went from a 1,200 to a 1,400. That'll change your future. That'll change what school you get into. That'll change how much scholarship money you get. 210 points on the SAT. All because some could wait and some couldn't. You know, guys, in the course of my ministry, I have, I have watched people who wanted a new car and they were kind of antsy and they go out and buy a new car and then they wish they'd waited. Watch people buy houses. You know, they just kind of got a wild hair and they go out and buy a new house and they, uh, they wish they'd waited. But those are nothing. Those are nothing compared to the single woman who gets pregnant and wishes, oh, I wish I'd waited. Or the single man who, um, who wants so much to be married. So he gets married and, and he says, oh, I wish I'd waited. And normally, you know, guys, when we, when we have failed to wait, you know why, don't you? Well, we've lost hope. We've lost perspective as to who we are. And we have begun to question the goodness of God. And the outcome is predictable. There's pain, there's chaos, there's Ishmael. 
And on those other occasions when I, when I have waited, you know, when I, when I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give me silver, but he said no. And, and so I waited and so often he ended up giving me some gold. Hey gang, you, you do know, don't you, that the last words in the Bible, the closing words of the Bible are about waiting. Waiting for our heavenly bridegroom to come and get his earthly bride. Because you know, don't you? You know this isn't heaven. Heaven is, is later. It's something for which we'll have to wait. And underneath our weight is a conviction that God is good. That he does all things well. And it has produced in me a right view of myself. Hopefully that'll help. Our Father, I, I do pray that you would remind us of, um, of the promises that you have made us and the nature and the character of the God that we call our Heavenly Father. That you are good. That you do all things well. And that though we find ourselves in the midst of riddles for which we have no solutions, that we can quiet our, our, our anxious hearts by being reminded that you are good. Father, um, would you, um, would you also Teach us of the great beauty of humility, the great beauty of remembering that all of life is a gift and that everything that we've got, we've got by way of gift and we owe to your gracious hand. Father, if you've brought people here today who have not yet met our Savior, would you show them the beauty that we've seen in Christ Jesus, the one who lived the life that we were supposed to live, but we didn't live it, and then died the death that we were supposed to die, dying it in our place. That Christ, would you show them the beauty in him that we have found? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.